1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Military History. My name is Alex Beckstrand. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, which is a channel on the New Books Network. Uh, Today I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Megan McRae to talk about her book Coalition Strategy and the End of the First World War the Supreme War Council and War Planning, 1917 to 1918. This book was released in 2019 from Cambridge University Press. And Dr. McCray is a senior lecturer in Strategic and Defense Studies Center at the Australian National University. So without further ado, uh, Megan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me today.
2: Great to have you, and uh, could you start, as we usually do, just by telling listeners a little bit about yourself, and then also how you got interested in the topic?
1: Absolutely, yeah, so I was talking to a colleague about this, and we were making jokes about it's like your origin story, so you're X-Men, but um, I'm not as cool as Wolverine, he was also Canadian, so I'm Canadian by origin, um, and uh, yeah, so how I got interested in the topic, I guess... My studies over time increasingly focused on um, how people respond to conflict and how they therefore think about the future. And so I initially did my master's work on science fiction, literature, and British strategy uh, in the Edwardian period. So it was 1906 to 1909, those really specific periods that historians always have. And um, yeah, then I was thinking about this in terms of the First World War and so I mentioned planning for 1919, and then I, I just started researching from there, basically. Um, yeah, and so it's been, a, it's you know, a long project. I've been, it came out in 2019, as you said, um, but it was out of my PhD thesis. So uh, one thing I'd like to mention is I worked on this book while I was on teaching only contracts. And so, uh, you know, it's quite intense. And I think it's important to mention that for early career re- researchers out there that, you know, um, when you're wanting to be an academic, you often have these great projects that you want to develop, but you also have so many pressures on your time in terms of trying to put food on the table. So this definitely, uh, started out as a labor of love and then was, a, a labor of trying to get employed, I guess would be the, uh, the, how I would, would say it ended up, um, but yeah, um, it's not a perfect book by any means. In fact, even when I was uh, looking at your questions and then referring to some of the charts in my book, I noticed a mistake. And I think that happens, again, when you, you're you producing a book um, and then you also need to get employed from that book. At some point, you just need to get it out, right? And then have a conversation about how the work turned out. So yeah, sorry, I went on a bit of a tangent, but I think those are important issues too.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for that uh, encouragement, especially for some of our listeners uh, listening in who might be going through uh, similar phases in their academic careers. Um, uh, we certainly think the the book came out uh, as strong as Wolverine. Um, so uh, that's, that's the way I read it at least. Um, and one, I should also mention before we continue that, um, that Megan is uh, calling in from uh, Canberra uh, and I, I am on the East coast. And so um, uh, it's uh, it's very neat. Uh, technology has brought us together here to be able to do this podcast and offer this uh, the information in the book to to the listeners. Um, so uh, going forward, then, could you just describe uh, the general thesis of the book?
1: Yeah. So I always felt like it was um, really multi tiered, but just to to not go on and on. Um, basically, I say that there was indeed an Allied strategy, and that many of the points of contention in the Allies attempting to fulfill this strategy were worked out increasingly as the war progressed uh, through this institution that they established, the Supreme War Council. And an important point for understanding much of what I argue is that the German Spring Offensive in 1918 really shocked the Allies and that they basically never wanted to underestimate the Germans again, and so this impacts the strategy that they create for one thousand, nine hundred and eighteen and one thousand, nine hundred and nineteen. And essentially, they they over overplan, overestimate. And just one point in terms of terminology, because it, it could be confusing for people. I'm going to say I'll say Allied when I'm I'm referring to Britain, France, Italy, and the United States in this.
2: Okay. Good to know. Um, so, you know. So prior to 1917 um, and the establishment of the Supreme War Council, how did the Allies coordinate strategy and operations amongst themselves, uh, if at all at times?
1: Yeah, so on the um, civilian side in particular, so they do have things like civilian missions and they have liaisons who will go between, you know, soldier, diplomats and the war offices um, the British and the French did set up a series of conferences and those met approximately monthly, but obviously that only included the, the British and the French. And then on top of this, um, for those diplomatic channels, I'd say that personal relationships were really key to them functioning smoothly and often personalities, people didn't get along. And one example of this is that uh, Clemenceau, the French uh, prime minister, complains about his own diplomatic corps uh, just not being able to get along with people. And I think another interesting point is that so Haig actually puts quite a bit of effort into learning French, so that he can actually work with the French commanders. Now, obviously, they're still responsible for their own fronts, but they, they do meet to discuss what they're doing. Um, and there's a bit of a joke that Haig was actually better at communicating um, his and expressing himself in French than he was in English.
2: Wow. Um, could, could you also kind of describe, um, you, you hinted at it, uh, the, the impetus or the events that maybe have uh, that directly preceded and led to the establishment of the Supreme War Council?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think something that's really important to keep in mind is that prior to the First World War, the Entente had no experience of conducting a multinational war on this scale. Um, and it's uh, the disastrous efe- events of 1917... That leads to a, a really big reassessment of how Britain, France, Italy, and then um, the United States were going to coordinate their war efforts. Um, so they basically think they need an enduring forum to fashion this Allied strategy um, and and then cooperation. So just in terms of scene setting in 1917, you know the French had the mutinies, um, and that this led to many. People wondering if France would have the will to continue the war, especially from the the British perspective. The British are very worried about what's happening with with the French. Um, But then in Britain, David Lloyd George, the prime minister, uh, he was appalled by the Passchendaele offensives. Um, You know, earlier in the year, in 1917, he had advocated that the Entente stiffen the Italians with their own troops, um, with British troops. But this had received little support. And so then when we have Caporetto um, alongside Passchendaele, so Caporetto was the um, pretty massive defeat for the Italians against the Austro-Hungarians and the Germans, um, he really starts to press for the creation of an an allied body. And part of this has to do with his own relations uh, with his military commanders. Um, He wants... You know, Lloyd George wants to create a body where he can push through his own strategic ideas. And then he gets support from the other um, nations, basically. So the French at this time, from their perspective, they really want the British to take up more line in France, right? Because they have dwindling manpower resources and they want the British to be doing more. So they think, oh, if we have a Supreme War Council in this forum, this is another avenue for us to really put pressure on the British. Uh, And then, of course, as I said, the Italians in the wake of Caporetto think that they'll they will also be able to um, get assistance with stabilizing their front, getting resources. And then finally, um, the Americans, you know, they wanted a a purely military organization for the Supreme War Council. Um, Basically, the Americans are very supportive of a unified command. Um yeah, so sorry, it does take a long time to describe these things because you have four perspectives. So I would say those are the main pressures at this time for the creation of a Supreme War Council. Um, and then uh, and then a little outside of that, stepping back from each nation is the fact that you have these four countries wondering what's going on with Russia, with the Russian Revolution. And, you know, I mean, the Russians have pinned down quite a few Uh, German and Austro-Hungarian forces on the Eastern Front, right? So if the Allies lose their Russian partner, those troops then are going, you know, the enemy will be able to move those troops to other theaters. Uh, And they never really know what's going on in Russia and how many troops could or couldn't be moved So what these events of 1917 demonstrate is that better coordination is required at both the political level and the military if the Allies are going to win the war. Um, Yeah, so they have an appetite for change, basically.
2: And you talk about early in the book, in the introduction specifically, about a a shared commonality, as you put it, uh, of the Supreme War Council. Um, are you able to to kind of touch on those characteristics that you, as you see them?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, And I'm sure some of this will also also come out uh, throughout the talk, but the big things are just as a summary uh, that they do have a a shared notion of victory. So there are these civil military tensions that are going on. um, And, you know, in, in the literature, a lot of people talk about frock coats and brass hats and, Uh, You know, they have these, especially in the British literature and in the British government, there are these disagreements over, you know, should there be an Eastern strategy or a Western strategy? But this shared notion of victory is really about everyone agrees that the Germans are going to have to be defeated on the Western front. They identify the Germans as the main enemy. Um, It's just when and what will the other theaters contribute to this victory is, is the main debates that they're having uh and so that's shared notion of victory is the first commonality the second would be um manpower as the key ingredient for winning the war and so where is this manpower going to come from how are they going to get it in the field trained uh supported supplied all those sorts of things and where and then i'd say the third commonality is um that they they work through the Supreme War Council, um, and that in particular the U.S. chooses to work with their Euro- European powers uh, through the Supreme War Council, especially as the war progresses. And I think that's what the book brings out is that you know this is an evolving structure, um, and increasingly we see the the Allies working through it. And then I'd say, um, which kind of ties up my somewhat covered it in the notion of victory but that the Allied strategy focused on the global context of the war and the concept that these theaters of war are really uh interdependent um yeah so those are the four (laughs) convoluted ones
2: yes (laughs) so so now we have the the creation of this this body the supreme war council um can you talk about uh, the, the, you know, I guess first maybe the military representatives appointed uh, to the Supreme War Council and and maybe how they, they functioned?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, basically, so there's a, I didn't say I should have said before as well, like there's the um, civilian body that sits over what the permanent military representatives are doing. And those are the the heads of state with the exception of the US, because obviously President Wilson's not going to Europe, and also the Americans want to keep this distance between what they do politically and what they do militarily. So they have someone sitting on the council to listen in on the political council, but that person doesn't offer political advice. Um, so what that means is for them, that representative on the military side, who is Tasker Bliss, who is a four-star general, um, He's having to do a lot of the the networking for the for the us and um, be very careful about offering diplomatic advice, but you know, in some ways becomes a bit of a military diplomat at times. Um, yes, yeah, so the again, because it's an evolving body, the individuals on the Supreme War Council change quite a bit. So what you see in November nineteen seventeen as it's being worked out is different from what you see. Uh, by the end of the war in, in 1918, so the just the key is that there are four military representatives. Um, Henry Wilson is the British one initially, and he ends up moving over to take up uh, the chief of imperial general staff position once, uh, and that's from Willie Robertson. He takes over that over that role in I think it's February 1918, and then. Um, Roll- so replaces him initially, but then, um, oh, why am I? I'm completely blanking on the person's name. His nickname is Tit Willow. That's what, um, Henry Wilson fondly calls him. Uh, sorry. I don't This is just, uh, me spacing. Um, anyway, the point is that once Tit Willow takes over that position, um, Henry Wilson and him are, are very close and very connected. So it's basically, you know, he says he represents Wilson in a, in a lot of what he says. And I think this is the case for the other three representatives. So, um, uh, by m- mid 1918, um, the Italian representative is, uh, di Robillon. originally it was Card- Cardona from the infamous battle of Caporetto. Um, uh, but he gets replaced when he retires with di Robillon. and then, um, it's initially vegan a foge for the French, but then very quickly is replaced by vegan and then again is replaced by Vélin. Um, and the point is that all of these people are connected to their chiefs of staff, um, although initially that's not how the British want it. That's how it evolves to be. Um, and I think if you're happy for me to go on about this, talking about how they actually operate, I think is important. And I think it's probably a little little more interesting. So. They're at the Hotel Trianon in Versailles. And for anyone who loves to travel and has the money, you can stay at the Hotel Trianon still. Um, And I would love to do that and take around a little map of where everyone, where they were all located. Um, So it's the British and the French, each take half of of the first floor of a hotel for their offices. And then the Americans and the Italians stay on on the second floor. And that's just for their offices. They all live um, in villas on the grounds. And so I think this visual is important for thinking about these people are like living and working together, right? And so, you know, they're out taking walks and talking to one another and, and you know, um, the prime the prime ministers might be visiting and they would be chatting with them. They have, um, for the British in particular, the British have a massive staff. Um, and they... Can send people to the front to get information they have liaisons with um the the commanders and that sort of thing so they're they get a lot of paperwork coming in that helps inform their decisions um so they have translators motorcyclists telephone operators all that kind of stuff so they're they're largely set up um and this is a lot a lot of this is based on the british model of working. Right? Because Morris Hankey is just such a a capable secretariat. He helped set up the Supreme War Council, and there, the British in particular, are operating from this model. Again, this is all pretty new, right? This is a big war. They're trying to figure out how do you even, you know, they don't have what we have today. If you think of how difficult it has been to coordinate efforts around COVID, like these people are are coordinating massive war effort with logistics and so many people, and, and they're figuring out how to do it. And that's part of what the Supreme War Council is, is figuring out how to do it. I think one cute story that comes out of how they're functioning is that the the British staff, when Henry Wilson originally sets it up, they have this big mirror in the room where they work. And when they're thinking about things from the German perspective, he insists that they all turn their caps backwards so that they look like German officers in order to help them get in the mindset of the Germans.
2: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's really uh, uh, taking, thinking, you know, like your enemy uh, t- turning the map around, as we say sometimes today to, to the next level. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, uh, you know, you, you, after the early, part of the book, you kind of move on and talk about um, some, of, some of the important discussions and, and episodes and ultimate decisions by the Supreme War Council. Uh, the first chapter looks uh, at the role of the Supreme, War, excuse me, the Supreme War Council regarding Allied action in the Balkans. Um, so could you kind of describe the context uh, of that debate? <laughs>
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, again, these things uh, get a bit complicated when you're looking at it from four perspectives. So I'll try to try to keep myself from going on <laughs> about aspects. But uh, yeah, so I mean, it's the French led the expedition in Macedonia. So they have economic and imperial interests in this region. And so they have the largest presence, basically. Um, But, I mean, both the British and the French are concerned that if the Germans controlled uh, this area, that they would end up, the Germans would end up dominating from the North Sea to the Indian Ocean. So from Hamburg all the way to the Persian Gulf via Constantinople. Um, And, you know, they they are obviously thinking about the post-war world and what this would mean for their own empires, So the central powers um, had driven Serbia out of its homeland. And this means that the German line of communication is, you know, could function from uh, um, to the Ottoman Empire via the Berlin Bag dead railway. I think the book's helpful in this case for maps um, and also like showing where things actually existed at the time and what railway lines they actually have versus what they have today, which as an aside, did become a complication when, when drawing the maps uh, with contemporary cartographers, where I had to look up old maps and be like, "That rail line doesn't exist <laughs> in this at this time," because it's easy to forget, right? That they're still building a lot of these things, um, and logistics is just such a, a a massive issue at this time, especially in places like um, uh, you know tracking up to fight in Palestine and the same in Mesopotamia. And then as, as I'm sure we'll get to it, uh, talking about Italy and just trying to build these rail lines. Um, so finally the, the allies didn't want the Germans ba- to um, obtain submarine bases in Northern Greece either. That's a big concern too. So they basically decided that they need to continue to maintain a, a presence in Macedonia. So in these discussions, the first question that comes up for the Allies is where would the Germans attack in the autumn of 1917? So again, this is part of that process of constantly trying to think like the Germans. Um, And so the British thought that they were going, the Germans would attack in Mesopotamia, and the French said the Balkans. Um, This becomes an issue because the British want to withdraw troops from Um, Salonika to use in their campaigns in the, in the Middle East. So it's um, a a bit of a fight debate, right? Because they have Mm -hmm. limited resources and then you would still have to look at how you would move these people and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I should say also, when I say where would the Germans attack, obviously you have, we're talking about um, Austro-Hungarians and the Ottomans as well, but they really see these attacks as coming from the Germans reinforcing their partners with these elite troops that will hit really hard. So that's why I say Germans. Um, it's not that I've forgotten about the other central powers. This is actually the terminology that they're using at the time in their discussions. Um, so then the question becomes how would the Balkan theater contribute to a victory against the Germans on the Western front after um the German Spring Offensive, and when we're looking into further into 1918. Um, so the debates shifts slightly um, about what, what should the allies actually be doing um, in this campaign. So the French want offensive action to pin down the central power troops, and they believe that a limited offensive would help improve the morale of the Greek army at this time, who they're trying to bolster and get up into the field. Again, At this time, manpower is always an issue. They're looking for it wherever they can get it. Um, The British, again, want to remain on the defensive still in 1918, but they want to continue to protect those submarine bases. So there are some debates about where the Allies in the Balkans should be focusing their efforts. Um, And that becomes a real fight between where you're protecting French interests versus British interests versus uh, Italian interests, because the... Um, Italians also have, um, interests here. Um, the Italians want to dominate the Adriatic. And so they want to form a, a, a base, um, over at Vologna basically. Um, but they want them to remain on the defensive as well. So they can just have a presence there, which helps in the post-war discussions. Right. Okay. Sorry, there's a little bit more to go here, but, um, I'd say an additional complication was that, uh, Foch, um, who... Uh, prior to becoming allied Generalis- Alli generalissimo, he's chief to the French general staff. Um, and again, this is early 1918. So he's giving directions directly to the the to the commander in the Balkans. And at that time, that's uh, Guillaume. And then you have the complication of the permanent military representatives who also want to discuss what they call the Balkan question, Um. But information is very slow to come to them. So you have competing interests, right? So the Supreme War Council trying to come to an agreement. Meanwhile, you have the French who are kind of operating on their own and they have these networks to do that. Yeah, so it changes a bit once Foch becomes allied Generalissimo. Um, He's concerned, again, that the Germans are going to bolster their attack. On the western front with forces from uh, the balkans so again he really argues to pin down troops and he's saying to pin down troops we need to have offensive action in the balkans and i think what we see is that foch is really serious because despite that he needs manpower in france in 1918 he's saying no keep those forces in in salonica and pin down the germans and then we have more changes. Again, it's it gets really complicated because you have so many people involved, right? And they're all using different channels. So the French end up replacing Guillemot in um, in Salonica with uh, Franche Despare, who the British refer to as Desperate Frankie. If you don't want to use the French pronoun- uh, pronunciation, they just go ahead and do that, like without consulting their allies, right? So then the British are super frustrated. Meanwhile, the British are saying, "You know what? We're reducing our divisional strength down from 12 to nine battalions," and they start doing this without great, like, really consulting the French. So you still have all of these um, conflicts going on, but the thing is, they actually end up discussing them through the Supreme War Council. Um, eventually, the British agree that some of, like, offensive action can occur in the Balkans but then they won't give a date. So this delays it. Um, and then we end up, you know, end of July and they, the Supreme war council is saying, okay, we could have some sort of a- offensive action in late October. You know, this is the final campaigning season. Um, the French grow impatient and just go ahead and, and launch an offensive when they get wind that, um, forces in the Bul- uh, in the balkans are looking pretty weak right so they want to take advantage of this and push as far as they can and that's that's what happens the french basically take a unilateral policy in the theater
2: which which sort of goes against the, the obviously the whole concept or idea of the supreme of establishing and the supreme war council and unified allied action
1: it does so it's one of the i, do, I mean i do admit it's definitely an imperfect body i think mm-hmm. what i say as like the is the important part of the Supreme War Council in this case is that they are actually have because they're having the fights through the Supreme War Council, which means they're actually talking about the issues. Um, they might not necessarily be uh, having a lot of effect on what's happening, but at least they know what's going on and that can inform what each individual nation is doing still. And they really can't. Uh, this will probably come up when we talk about the U.S., but, you know, they, they really can't divert resources to this theater because the Americans are not going to allow it.
2: Mm-hmm. So uh, out of this Balkan discussion, um, it becomes this this important joint note 37. Um, can you describe what that is for the listeners?
1: Yeah, sure. So joint note 37 gets... Um, it's important to remember that this this happens after um, Foch becomes Generalissimo. So the permanent military representatives then at that stage really start to focus on the, I'd say the near future and then future campaigns. So late 1918 and 1919 in particular. And so they're doing this thinking for joint note 37. It takes a long, like it's not done in a couple days, right? It takes them from July to September. Um, they're working on it uh, individually initially, and then sharing their ideas, and then de- developing the final joint note um, thirty-seven. So, for any joint note to go to the Supreme War Council, all four PMRs have to agree upon it. Um, so there is again this like negotiated situation that happens with the joint notes that get put forward. So what it says is, and again, it, it comes back to that shared commonality you asked me about earlier, is that they determined that the decisive victory could only be won by defeating the German army. And that means the total collapse of German resistance on all fronts. So the moral uh, and material exhaustion of the enemy on the other fronts would aid in defeating the Germans on the Western front. Um, they say that France and Italy are the main theaters of war. Um that the decisive battle would have to occur on the French front. And by the autumn of 1918, um, they thought that allies would have substantial dominance in terms of the number of troops that they would have over, over the enemy. Um, yeah. And so in the autumn of 1918, they said the Western front should be secured against enemy attack in order to prepare for that major offensive in 1919. And so they, they encourage the buildup of munitions, tanks, uh, things like aviation, and they say other material. And they say, really importantly, as Foch requested. So I think this really highlights that the permanent military representatives are supporting that French generalissimo. Um, yeah, and there's much more detail there, but I think that's, that, that's the main framework of Joint Note 37.
2: Okay. And I, I was going to ask you a, a little later about Foch becoming generalissimo, but you've mentioned it a few times. So could you just uh, talk about how, how he does come about to be generalissimo? And, um, you know, is there, is everybody, I guess, are all the other powers generally receptive to his appointment?
1: Yeah. So <laughs> I guess it's probably a slow, I would say, a slow evolution to unified command uh as i said earlier yeah so the americans are really supportive of the concept and then continue to be really supportive of foch um throughout the remainder of the war um it's always going to have to be a french generalissimo i think like just despite um some tensions with the british (laughs) the major campaign is in france right so it would be weird to have a british commander there But yeah, these are things to work out. And I think it's, it's really complicated when you look at the loss of life, when you're hitting 19, end of 1917, in particular, it's hard to say to your people, you know, the population, are you gonna, you can have a commander that's not of your, the same nation as you are, if that makes sense, right? Because people are pretty nationalistic at this time. And so they have to be that's, again, so there could never really be a British commander overseeing, full stop, the, the effort in France. Um, so, yeah, when the Supreme War Council was established in November 1917, I'll just, just to talk about how Foch ends up being in, in the right, in that place. So Foch is already in Italy. So he initially represents the French at the Supreme War Council as the military advisor. Um, And he, as I said, doesn't become the permanent military representative. Um, It's his close colleague, Végan, that does, because Foch was the French chief of general staff. That's not going to work as as him having both those roles. The British won't agree to it. The British make a really big deal about this. It's um, that there should be that um, difference in roles for the permanent military representatives and the general staffs. Um, and at this time, Pétain is actually the the commander in chief of the French army, not, not Foch. Okay. But the issue is that Pétain is actually a a, a very negative character in terms of thinking about how, like, are we going to win the war? Are we going to win the war with an, an offensive? And I think we all know that the generals who talk about offensive action and victory tend to be the ones who end up in, in key roles. We see this with um, like Nivelle in early 1917, right? Like he's going to win the war in 1917. Um, and, and so I think for an ally generalissimo, Pétain doesn't have the right personality. Whereas Foch is, um, he has more of the, it's they call it, they say that he has the energy for the job, basically. And so when the Germans launched that spring offensive um, in March 1918, and the Allies realized, look, we need this unity of command. Um, you know, the Germans have just split the French and British lines. And although um, Hagen, Pétain, and Foch managed to plug that, they realized we need to be better coordinated, actually, on the battlefield right now. It's Foch's um, personality, I think, that really raises him to the level of, of being in that position. It also doesn't hurt, that, I should say, part of the Supreme War Council was the creation of this um, general reserve, which I think gets talked about quite a bit in, in the literature. I talked about it a bit in my book, uh, but I think other people have talked about it a bit more. So that strategic reserve that the Supreme War Council uh, uh, attempts to set up, that was going to oversee about 31 divisions. Um, so you can imagine that whoever controls 31 divisions on the Western Front actually has quite a bit of power, uh, if that yeah. makes sense. It does. And it so does. Foch was initially um, overseeing that executive executive war board. Um, yeah. Um, and so again, he's well positioned to become Allied Generalissimo. And I should say, I just want to know, because Elizabeth Greenhill wrote a really brilliant book on on Foch, if anyone wants to read more. Um, I feel like I'm doing a very bad job of, of discussing something she discusses very brilliantly.
2: <laughs> um, so moving back up now, um, uh, if we could just talk about the Inter-Allied Transport Council, I think that um, you you bring that out a lot in your chapter uh, regarding support to the Italian theater. Um, so, can you just talk about maybe what that was and and how it played a role in the uh, Italian discussions?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, again, so the context for the Interallied Transport Council, I think, um, I think what the the chapter of my book does is to actually highlight the importance of the Italian theater. Uh, to the Allies in general. You know, it's not just the Italians saying that they're important. It's actually the recognition that um, the Italians are holding what they call the back door to Europe, uh, to France. Uh, so they're holding the back door to France, to the extent that when the inter-Allied Transport Council talks about the Western Front, they actually define their terminology to include Italy when they say Western Front. And that's to so- a yeah, to embody this, like, how important Italy is. It's not France, but it's it's close, right? Um, they just don't have the numbers of the French. I mean, the, the French army is massive in, in comparison. Um, and so the Inter-Allied Transport Council, what it's trying to do, in a sense, is to to counter the advantage that the central powers have. And that advantage is the fact that the Central Powers have those interior, in, internal rail lines. And so they can move troops really quickly from the Allies' perspective between various theaters of war and then surprise the Allies. And again, this is part of that context of Allies get really surprised by the German Spring Offensive, not that it happens, but that it's as strong as it was. And so they don't want to be surprised again. They, you know, a Caporetto similar situation. So if they, the idea is that if they can improve uh, rail lines between France and Italy, they'll be able to move troops between those two theaters. What the tension actually becomes is that um, I think the Italians initially think that troops will only be moving in one direction and that's from France to Italy. (laughs) And increasingly, as they are considered a partner to the allies, the allies are not are going to want things from them as well. If that makes sense, if it's an if it's an equal partnership. So, um, you know, the uh, Italian army is regrouping for the much of this time period that I'm looking at, 1917 to 1918. Um, and so they want resources, but what they slowly begin to realize is that the rail line moves in, in two directions. Uh, but the advantage of this improving this rail line is also that um, they can move yeah. troops, but also more more coal. So that they the idea is that they could then uh, free up some of those troop, uh, some of those um, seagoing vessels that could maybe be converted to troop transport, which connects to bringing over troops from, from the U S as well. Um, yeah, I will say, I know I kind of said this before, but just to highlight the point, but the issue also becomes that, and this is a constant issue during this time period, they have limited resources. And so they're always talking about issues in relation to what's happening elsewhere and then having to prioritize, I guess that's normal life but you know they want to improve these rail lines between italy but that's going to come at the cost of potentially improving the rail in france um and that matters mid 1918 because if the allies are going on the offensive they need to have those rail lines to bring up logistics right to bring up supplies to keep pushing their offensive um if that makes sense
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify
2: I wonder if we can't just take a diversion for a uh, a brief moment and just talk about um, your research process or where you did research. And I mean, a book like this that covers, <laughs> like, like you mentioned a few times, just how com- how co- complex it is with the the different nationalities. Um, and so bringing in all those perspectives, uh, how did you do the research in order to, to to do that with the book, which you do very well in the book itself?
1: Oh, well, thank you. It's uh it took a lo- first, it took a long time, right? Like I feel like I worked on this project for in some ways, nearly a decade, I guess, if I'm being completely honest. And as I said before, I was on those teaching only contracts for it's around three years. Um, but you know, you still, you still have to be working on the book and trying to get away for research. Uh, how I began the research uh, again, like, I just want to be honest. It, all felt really messy like i i love doing research so i think i was fortunate in that like i like being in archives so that was a, a great motivator um i started by going to the british archives so i was living in oxford at the time um and i would take the bus because i couldn't afford the train I would take the bus to Kew all the way to Kew. And I. that's when I found out that I get motion sick, which I'd never been motion sick before, but all the roundabouts on the way to queue. So I, I would take the bus into London, obviously, and then grab the tube to Kew. And I would sit there and read about the Supreme War Council and copy documents. And then uh, just, again, to highlight how research can be really frustrating, I finished doing all that and then, like, I don't know. Six months later, they digitized it all. Like they posted the digitized. So they have been. No one said. I talked to the archivist. not to. Now it sounds like I'm, I'm being cruel to archivists. But no one said, "Hey, by the way, we're digitizing all of these." Yeah. So I would take my little, like you know, also for people who have worked on uh, microfilm at Q, you know how dirty those readers are. So I would like take my little cleaning kit and clean it so that the copy I made would wouldn't have all those little pieces of fluff through the letters, like, you know, trying to read stuff and there's fluff in the letters. Yeah. So that was the, I, I spent the, f- like the first part of the project was coming to grips um, with the British documentation. Cause there's so much of it. And that was just looking at the Supreme war council documents. And then I expanded out to start looking at um, private papers a bit. So, you know, going to Cambridge to the uh, Churchill archives um you know they have Hankey's papers there uh Emery and Rawlinson. and I also looked at Churchill's stuff as well because Churchill's important as minister of munitions yeah i mean i honestly i'm i will try not to go into too much detail cuz i think i went to at least 15 different archives so this could be an hour long part of the podcast <laughs> but yeah so you know i tried to bite off something that I could chew, which was understanding the British perspective. And then I planned my trip to the U.S. Um, And then I spent a lot of time looking at, while I was there, looking at um, private papers. And again, there are just so many of them. So I went to the Library of Congress first, and I remember just feeling a little overwhelmed by the sheer volume of material. Now, of course, the Supreme War Council documents, because they make multiple copies, you're getting same copies in the same archives, but trying to track that while you're at the archives is pretty difficult, right? So you have to make a decision. Am I going to copy the documents and analyze them later? Or am I going to analyze them now? And I did a a mixture of the two, depending on what it was I was looking at. Yeah. And then, yeah. So private papers took a long time. Um, Again, just to be honest about what research looks like when you're a PhD student, I stayed in like a really sketchy hostel, um, it was like someone got stabbed out front. Um, I told some friends where I was the neighborhood I was staying in and they were just like, don't stay there. But I also asked people, yeah, it was too late. Exactly. Like, honestly, I'd never seen like burnt out buildings bef- before. So on one side of the street was like, I guess, as, as someone in the neighborhood said, it was like being gentrified. And then the other side wasn't and the biggest danger was uh, the metro stop, right going there, coming to and for anyway, I survived and I made some friends who were on a similar situation, PhD students just trying to get their research done, um, staying uh, in the country as long as they can with the money that they have. so yeah that that's what that looked like. Um, and then so for my thesis, I predominantly lo- relied on um the american papers for some of the french perspective because the american papers for those who are interested in this topic are really great for holding french and italian documents um so i could get a pretty yeah a pretty good understanding of what was happening from the french and italian perspective from those papers and that's what i did largely for the, for the thesis. I contextualize it in other ways with some private papers that were available, um, just to, you know, check my own work basically. Um, uh, but it wasn't until I finished my PhD that I then, I had a, I, um, got the job at Avarist with and was able to feel like I might be able to feed myself. And so I could go to the French archives, um, and not worry so much, if that makes sense. So then I, I went there and then I was, was there for part of the summer, um, at, uh, Vincennes. So the Chateau Vincennes, um, which is a beautiful location to work in cause it's a, a cool castle and it, it has a, a moat around it and you walk over a drawbridge when you go to work in the morning. So it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yes,
2: that, that is very neat. And, uh, that is quite the, the, archival, uh, story there, the tour day archives. So no, thank you for that. <laughs> um, uh, so moving on, um, are we, could you talk about some international cultural dimensions amongst the countries at the Supreme War Council and, uh, and then kind of tie that into how the European powers, um, were able to work with the Americans?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I don't, I don't know how much I can say, like pinpoint specifically based on concrete evidence in my head, how if they're cultural or international dimensions. But what I can say is that um, the Europeans did often find it hard to work with the Americans because the American, well, at least um, President Wilson's ap- approach to how you conduct a war was so different from From how the Europeans were doing it and the fact that also obviously President Wilson's staying stays in the United States. Sorry I often talk in the in the present because in my mind it's in the in the present um it's just a bit weird but yeah so um this this Way that the Americans operate, I think comes out in the book how it, it causes so many complications when they're trying to make concrete plans uh, for the end of 1918 and 1919, in particular, uh, because there are basically the European powers are getting different sets of information from the Americans and from the European perspective. Why would you have different figures on some of these issues? Like, for example how many troops can the Americans supply? Like just, they just want to figure, is it 80 divisions? Is it a hundred divisions? What does 80 divisions mean? Does that include support troops? Like, cause this massively changes the figures, right? And so that's what ends up happening because president Wilson is letting the commanders lead in the field. Um, I'm trying to, It is, again, it's a really complicated issue. So Pershing wants to form the American army, like his his own army. He, for a while, is uh, training with in, He's in the French and mostly French lines. You know, his troops are training there. But at the end of the day, the Americans want to understandably have an American army that has a presence in the field. And so that's what Pershing's pushing for. Meanwhile, Bliss, as permanent military representative, He's trying to work with the, the allies to, to get so that basically the allies can get what they need as a whole group to defeat the Germans, specifically on, on the Western Front in France. And then you have, you know, um, Secretary Baker back in, um, he's mostly in the U.S., so he does go over for a visit, uh, and Peyton March. And they're working to in the U.S. to try and figure out what resources does the U.S. Army actually need. So that's you know supply and troops and transport. And so because on the on the American side, despite that they are really they're pro unity of command for simplicity's sake, they have these various channels that the European allies aren't always sure. Who's the boss, basically? Whose figures do we believe? Because, you know, the the price for getting it wrong is pretty high, right? They need need to know, they need to have this information because they're trying to plan a massive logistical effort. And I think that's the that's the frustration. Eventually Baker travels to Europe to try and sort things out because Pershing keeps giving the Allies these like keep saying that he's gonna the americans can field 100 divisions uh in 1919 i mean Foch thinks that's great Foch would love to have 100 division american divisions in 1919 right but whether or not it's realistic to to for example even transport them to europe uh for 1919 let alone supply train all that kind of stuff that has to happen you know you're talking about how, you have to move these people across the. US itself it's just a it's just so huge that they need the correct figures is my point and the Americans themselves need to understand what's happening um, so I don't I don't know if I completely answered your question I'm happy to pick up on any of that if you want clarity
2: No absolutely yeah that, that's that's sort of what I was getting at was that you know, sort of the, the difficulties between um, in, in particular working with with the the Americans. Um, and I, sh- I probably should, you know, you do talk about it as well in the book that not, not just in terms of the of the figures and trying to, to really understand the contribution that the United States will make, which is going to be uh, in their 1919 planning so crucial. Um, but there's also the personality, obviously, part of that too, which which I you know, I think a lot of listeners who understand this topic know with uh, with is the is 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 Pershing going to stick to forming you know, that separate uh, American army. Um, uh, even, even when, you know, the desperate times come and and are trying to, and the the allies are trying to sort of pick off, uh, uh, units from the Americans to be able to, you know, fill gaps and and things like that. Um, go ahead.
1: Oh, no, yeah. I was just, cause I, absolutely. And it, it's really contentious. And I think the literature shows that as well, right? Like there are good reasons for the Americans to want to form their own army, there are good reasons for the allies to ask, um, for those, um, they ask for international divisions, right. At one stage where they're at their, yeah, they want Americans to be filling, filling their, their lines because they're, they are really concerned that the Germans might win this.
2: So, you know, as you've, as you've talked about, you know, planning for 1919 was, you know, a big effort by the, the Supreme war council, and the the powers that made it made up uh that organization is it fair to say that the the supreme war council did not expect the war to end when it did in 1918?
1: yeah for sure i I mean not just the supreme war council but i i would say the majority of people didn't think the war was going to end in in 1919 even you know coming to the final days of the war i mean Fo- Foch gets more enthusiastic about the ability to win the war kind of as they start to successfully counterattack attack and, and realize that they're able to push the germans back uh, uh quite substantially um but yeah so i mean i think that's a good context for the book right is that uh, when people ask me about it i always say you know like well I started with this project because of it you what you realize is that the allies don't think the war is going to end in November 1918 and so they they set up this mechanism which they then keep adding to as they realize start pinpointing coordination issues um and then in particular the Americans as as I said before like really start pushing okay well let's talk about this issue through the supreme war council um Yeah, uh, I think in some ways that also helps them streamline what they're doing, because, as I said before on the previous question, you you know, they're really trying to scale up their war effort, which is complex. The Supreme War Council gives them an avenue to do that. Um, But, yeah, I don't it's really hard to emphasize. Just how much people don't think the war is going to end in 1918, other than to say they don't think the war is going to end in 1918. So I have written another article about this which was in i think it was war and society about how i look at the various um shifting perspectives of the key individuals in political and military leadership in 1918 and how their how their opinions shift based on on what's happening and um yeah just why they change their minds um uh, but then again you have to remember the germans are a pretty formidable enemy. And one of the things on their mind is what happens if you push the Germans into German territory, then like, how hard are they going to fight then sort of thing. And you, if you look at even casualty rates in 1918, they're what the second, I think they're the second highest in the war. Like there's a lot of hard fighting, right? Like it's not, it's not like the Germans are being pushed over.
2: Yeah. No, that's a great point. And I, I think that your, your comment, um, Uh, about, uh, you know, if you want to synthesize sort of the idea of behind the book or just the the topic in general is that, you know, the Allies did not think the war was going to end uh, when it did. Um, You know, that that really does sort of put it in perspective um, and and kind of puts you right there in, you know, in 1918 um, in, in, you know, in, in thinking uh, maybe not with our caps on backwards uh, like the British, but uh, thinking like in terms of as if you're there what's what's happening now.
1: Well, I also think like a lot of the literature, it, it makes sense, right? That the literature focused on has focused on what actually happened, and, and especially operationally. And there's a lot of literature on, you know, you know, victory in the Hundred Days, Hundred Days campaign, that sort of thing, because for a, a long time. um, people just saw the the first world war just as, as a defeat, right? Like the whole effort was futile. And so historians then, you know, picked up this idea of, well, let's look up how victory came about um, all these sorts of things like uh, learning curves, interactions between allies. Um, and so they were focused on what actually was happening on the battlefield and looking less at, at like the future thinking, future planning, that sort of thing. So I guess it's where I'm trying to contribute to the literature as well, is to say, well, actually the mentality at the time was this war was going to continue into 1919, and there is really concrete planning that goes into it. And yes, they sacrificed some of that planning for a victory in 1918, which I think is another reason why people have kind of scoffed at the Supreme War Council, right? Is because they kind of give up some of that planning because they want to win tonight. They want to win when they can. Right. And as soon as possible, this is a high stakes game. Um, and so they let a lot of things go.
2: Absolutely. Um, so I I think, you know, just skip it ahead a couple questions. Um, Um, you know, we, we talked about sort of the war ending when it did and whether that was anticipated, but can you also, um, touch on if at all, uh, did the Supreme War Council play any role in in the negotiations in the fall of 1918 that ultimately brought the war um, the the war to a conclusion?
1: Uh, yeah, so I think the main role um, of the Supreme War Council in negotiations. I mean, again, I keep saying it; it's so complicated because. <laughs> The Supreme War. There's a lot of politicking going on through the whole war, right? Like there's all of these balancing of interests. I always try to explain war aims to to students as a on a like a sliding scale of our minimum war aims that we will accept and our maximum, like what we would really ideally like to have. And then not every like, and then people have different scales that they're working to in a sense. Um, And I think that's why it makes things like negotiations through the Supreme War Council it's a complicated uh, question to answer because the Supreme War council is one avenue they can use to discuss armistice terms. But I, like, really it's like the British and the French as much as possible would love to exclude the Americans, <laughs> you know, like if they can, they do. And I think I mentioned a few cases in the, in the book where uh, they try to do that. Right. So there's one situation where, because uh, like, some people are getting sick with influenza I'm not sure if that's exactly what Tasker Bliss has at the time, but he's supposed to, he gets given a whole bunch of paperwork uh, late in the evening and is ill and tries to stay up all night to digest it, but just can't attend the meeting. So has to tell, send someone else and say, don't say anything on the American opinion. But like this delight, like really the British, French and Italians are delighted by this, right? Because the Americans are really starting to to come in with a lot of weight by the end of 1918. Um, and so anyway, but back to your question about what role did the Supreme War Council play in negotiations? So they advise on armistice terms. Um, but I think what's really important about the terms that they draw up is that they demonstrate that the allies really want to ensure that the Germans are defeated. So like, can we make the armistice? Because armistice is just a, a ceasefire, right? It's not the end to the conflict, Uh, But they really want to make sure that the Germans aren't going to resume uh, the war um, in uh, 1919. So one of the concerns is that, you know, maybe the Germans are just asking for this ceasefire so that they can rest over the winter. And then they're going to come back again in the spring. And again, this is reflective of, I think, the the German spring offensive in 1918. Um, And so what the Allies want to achieve is what they hadn't yet achieved on the battlefield. And that's a complete military victory. So we see things like they're going to maintain the blockade um, in the Supreme War Council terms. So, you know, they're going to give the Germans only four weeks to withdraw. These are the initial terms. They actually become a bit harsher. Um, So by giving someone only four weeks to withdraw on such a big front, they're basically saying that the German withdrawal will be chaos and that the Germans will have to abandon a whole bunch of material, which then conveniently the Allies can pick up if they need to. Um, yeah, so the Allies use the terms um, actually drawn up by Foch to guide them, as opposed to using the ones drawn up by the permanent military representatives. But there are discussions through the Supreme War Council which help them come to uh, to, to terms. Um, Yeah. But again, I think what you see with the terms is that um, in some ways they are trying to cripple the Germans. Right. So the naval terms cripple the German Navy and merchant marine. Um, All of the German merchant marine is dismantled. Meanwhile, the Allies get all of their merchant marine returned. Uh, But what I, I will say is if you don't mind, because I was going off, off script a little bit here is when you think about this kind of stuff, right? Like they're drawing up these armistice terms, they're making them really harsh. Um, Cause they don't want, they don't want to fight that basically, especially Foch, like does not want any more blood spilled over this. So if you can end the war with these terms, that's what you should do. Um, but then we get this stab in the back myth that gets created in the interwar period, right? That the Germans aren't defeated. And it's, it's so frustrating because the allies don't know the Germans are defeated. So they're drawing out these terms, but the Germans are, when you look at that, like when you look at it from their perspective, they are defeated. And then you get this whole myth concocted.
2: (laughs) Very interesting. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And um, so I guess sort of, continuing you know basically continuing your answers right there you know, you've talked about how the the Allies use fach terms um, uh, in terms of uh, you know, uh, drafting the the armistice um, so you know, okay the armistice is signed takes effect on November 11th what what happens and what uh, to the Supreme War Council then and what do they keep doing during uh, after November of 1918.
1: Yeah, so this is one of the things that I would love to write on and they keep saying I'm going to and then I just, just finding the time, right? Um, so I uh, what I know from the records that I have is that they continue to advise on the treaty uh, while well, the Treaty of Versailles being drawn up. And so, uh, so the, that's the permanent military representatives and Foch. Um, the Supreme War Council, the political side, um how it's usually described is that it becomes the council of ten and then it becomes um the big four, right? So it basically devolves or like well or evolve. It depends on how you see that. In numbers there are fewer people, but in impact it's probably greater. Um yeah, so they the permanent mil- the so the military advisors continue to write um joint notes. Now they don't write very many of them, but again, it basically comes back to they're keeping an eye on the Germans and wanting to ensure that they're defeated. and then if the Germans aren't defeated, what are they going to do? Um so for example, uh, Foch talks about if the Germans won't sign the Treaty of Versailles, then they're going to take you know bridgeheads. Um, so that when the war resumes, the war will be continued on German territory. Um, so it's, it's basically ensuring that the, they have, that they have plans for if the war resumes.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, so sort of taking a step back and uh, having sort of a broad view, um, do you think there are lessons learned from the experience of the Supreme War Council that shaped Allied planning, uh, you know, with regard to the second world war. Um, and does that, does the Supreme war council have a legacy in that sense?
1: So early in the second world war, uh, the British and the French use the Supreme war council, uh, when they're looking to set up channels of communication and to coordinate strategy and military action really early on, but this doesn't survive because uh, Churchill basically replaces it, um, I think part of the issue here is that the Americans are, become such a massive partner in the second world war. This isn't really the, the case in the first world war, right? Like the French uh, British and the U S are really in 1918 culminating to be cool. I won't say equal partners, but they're getting close, right? Like they all have something pretty big to offer one another. And so they, they really have to work together. I just don't, I'm not a second world war expert, but I just don't really see that same kind of balancing going on. Um, I think if you really wanted to do justice to this question, where you would find probably the most interesting information to answer it would be to look at what people are operating on these, uh, on the Supreme war council and its various committees who are then working uh, on, especially on the logistics side, uh, in the Second World War, or have like a dad, or like so, Stetnis is an is an example here. I think uh, it's there's Stetness Junior and Stetness Senior, and once in the First World War, and I think ones in the Second World War. Uh, I'm driving this in my brain from a really long time ago, so I might not have it correct, but I'm I'm pretty sure that's that when I was looking at the papers, I remembered having this this thought, um, and I think that's that would be if you really wanted to, again, because I'm a big believer in really doing your research. That would be. If anyone needs a PhD topic out there, <laughs> that doing something like that will be really fascinating. Um, And it would just, it would be like a hard yards on research, right? Um, Yeah. And what would I say? So I think also the legacy here would be maybe more about allied relations. So, you know, they're coming together in this major war effort. You know, these are, rivals generally you know italian french british rivals they have rival interests in these regions but they're coming together to work together and then you see that in things like the league of nations so i think this concept of we can work together despite that we have rival interests that would maybe be i would say the most important legacy
2: okay yeah um and uh question we all usually end on here on the, on the network. Um, but not no pressure if, if, if there's nothing sort of, um, in the hopper yet, but do you have any future projects that you are working on that you could share with us?
1: <laughs> I do. I, <laughs> I hope I'm allowed to share it. I was, uh, so I'm, I'm working on, um, um, a volume in a multi-volume series that's being created, um, about, um, basically navies. So I'm again, I'm just not sure how much I'm allowed to talk about it this time. I should have asked. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'll just say what I'm working on. So I'm working. It's first world war. I'm looking at Naval coalitions and Naval relationships in the first world war. So not just from a British perspective, but like kind of taking what I did here. Cause what I never mentioned in this whole talk was that there's actually an allied Naval council. Um, and it's working at the same time. It's one of the, the it's also under the political side of the Supreme war council. And, you know, I, I actually, when I did this book, I think for me, the most interesting ideas for the book came out of this stuff by looking at, at transport, looking at the merchant Marines and getting into those, those shipping records. And so, uh, yeah, that's, I'm going to be looking at um, naval coalitions and partnerships and how people view one another, uh, in the First World War, if if that made any sense. It's still, <laughs> still shaping it,
2: but yeah. It's yeah, still in the early phases, but fa- fascinating topic uh, in general, and um, we look forward to having it. And, and when it does come out eventually, uh, we'd love to have you back on uh, on the channel here to talk about it.
1: I'd love to be back on and Thanks for having me today.
2: No, thank you so much. And once again, we've been talking with uh, Megan McCrae. Her book is... Um, coalition Strategy, and the End of the First World War, the Supreme War Council, and War Planning, 1917 to 1918. Megan, thank you so much. This was a wonderful discussion, and uh, I loved uh, talking to you about the topic.
1: Right. Thanks, Alex. And I just want to say congratulations on your recent article.
2: Thank you very much. I, I appreciate that very much.